Francis, even in those early days after the trial. Hola. Hola. <laughs> Doesn't this look cool? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not even that funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm so tired. she <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss my roommate. I am. <laughs> what time is it by you? Is it nine o'clock? I mean, ten, eight o'clock? Uh, it's seven. Seven. Two hours. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Hi. I'm so tired. I didn't even we miss you. Wait, they. They look any confusion. Oh. <laughs> oh. Ah, My friend's mom. Yeah, today. What'd she say? What? She's frozen. Frozen. Okay, I think she's frozen. Was it nuts? No. Oh, so full. Are we on mute? We are not. <laughs> the rabbi's not here yet.
Hi, Batia. Well. <laughs> Hi, Mimi. Hi, Noah. Hi, Shani. Hi, Fanatsvia. Hello. Do you guys see the beautiful coloring page I'm doing? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh, it's so pretty. It does look pretty. So cute. Do you want to see the drawing on the middle? Of course. Whoa. Whoa. Oh. Are you using charcoal? No, just pencils. But it's Ooh. it's hard because it's a lot of dark colors. But it's fun. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Inspired by a picture of Nahamas. I was going to say, yes. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Nahama, the photographer. Mm hmm. Hi. It was Independence Day in Israel today. Oh, how was it? It was a lockdown. Yeah, full lockdown. It didn't even feel like it. Gosh, it's crazy. Yeah. Like more than usual? Yeah, way more. They've been lifting all the restrictions. So um, I think starting Sunday it was kindergarten to third grade or third grade to kindergarten is going back to school. And clothing so shops are allowed yeah. to start opening soon. Yay. Yeah, the, the, the number of people recovered is larger than the number of people, the number of active cases, which is like crazy. Oh, really? Wow, yeah, it's amazing. like 78,000 recovered and 74 or 72,000 active. Rabbi's here. Can people hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. All right. My internet is not doing so well. Um, as you could tell from yesterday, so I'm hoping we can get through this class without any crashing. Um, but it's, uh, not sure what's wrong with it. Okay. So yesterday, everyone could try muting themselves unless they're asking a question that would go better. Okay. Yesterday, we uh, got cut off as I was finishing and explaining this idea of the mitzvahs being the limbs of the king. The idea being that Hashem is only truly present in the world um, in the mitzvah, in the sense that a person's soul is present in the world in their limbs. And so the, the difference between your connection to Hashem in your love for Hashem versus the connection to Hashem um, in the mitzvah would be the difference between the way that I exist in your mind versus the way I actually exist. I exist in your mind is merely your perception of me, your awareness of me. And so when you feel something, you're feeling something not actually directly towards the person, towards the beloved, but towards your image of the beloved, towards your sense of the beloved. 
But to actually connect them, you have to connect them in objective reality, and they have to actually be there. And so the idea is that in the performance of the mitzvah, Hashem is actually there. Um, and so the mitzvah is, is the fulfillment of the desire to connect, which is what love is, because only then are you actually with Hashem. You're only there truly with God. Um, and that's a theme that we're going to be elaborating on throughout time in different ways. So I'm not going to do more of it here. Um, in fact, in chapter two itself, we're going to actually get um, a little bit deeper into this idea in, in, in a little bit. Okay, let's move on, unless anyone has any questions. I'm going to take that as a no. Okay. While fear is the root of the 365 prohibitive, prohibitive commands, okay, fear to rebel against the supreme king of kings, the only one blessed to be he, or still a deeper fear than this, that he feels ashamed in the presence of the divine greatness to rebel against his glory and do what is evil in his eyes, namely any of the abominable things hated by God, which are the klipa and sitra'acha, which draw their nature man below and have their hold in him through the 365 commands that he violates. Okay, there is a lot there. The first thing that I want to do is I want to talk about the idea that the fear is the root of the 365 negative commandments and um, that previously the Alter Rebbe had said that the person is clothed in the commandments. Now, the idea, of, the idea is that the idea being that the behavior, action, or speech, or thought garbs the person's um, feelings towards Hashem, like we spoke about in previous classes. Now, the issue here is that when you're talking about a positive mitzvah, such as lighting a Shabbos candle, immersing in the mikvah, reciting a blessing, um, prayer, whatever the case might be, you're actively doing something. And so there is a, there is a reality to the garment. There's a reality, you are, you are engaged in an action. You are, you are saying words, you're thinking a thought, right? So there is something there that the desire to connect to Hashem can actually be clothed into. But a negative commandment um, is the abstaining from doing something. I'm not actually doing an action or saying words or, or thinking a thought. And so there seems to be a very difficult thing to understand is how can it be that my fear is, my fear of God, whatever fear is, but my fear of God is clothed in the negative commandments. If by negative commandments, if I'm observing them, it means I'm not doing anything. There is no garment. There is no substantive thing there that, is a, that, is, that my fear is manifest through. So this question actually, when the Rebbe uh, um, um, wrote his private notes on the Tanya, the, the Rebbe actually noted this question and did not answer it. However, and far be it for me to answer questions that the Rebbe himself left unanswered. However, in a later talk of the Rebbe in a footnote, um, the Rebbe does address the idea, although he doesn't make direct reference to Tanya. So 
Now there is a there is a a, a project a little historical background where I get my my information from. There is a there is a project that the Rebbe wanted, which is to publish a Tanya with all of the different comments of the Chabad Rebbeim um, on the page. So much the way much the way that um, a traditional Chumash is printed, where you have all the commentaries around, or the Talmud is printed with all commentaries around it. The, the Rebbe wanted that the Tanya should be printed as like a central text with all the different things in that are stated in other Maimarim discourses and Sikhs talks um, that the Chabad Rebbeim have addressed and elucidated different issues in the time. The Rebbe never actually, um, this is something that, something that the Rebbe wanted to have done, the Rebbe never actually did it, although he spoke about it, he, he, he encouraged the idea. And so recently, in the past few years, this project has been undertaken um, and they're coming out slowly but surely with uh, one chapter at a time. Um, they're available for free PDF. They're all in Hebrew. And so there they call from all the different things that the Rebbeim have said and written. And there um, they make note of this later footnote, which seems to address the issue. So that's the basis of what I'm going to explain. So the idea is that there is a difference between actively not doing something and simply not doing it. Okay? And I'm going to elaborate a bit more um, just to flesh this out. Later on, the Al-Jabra quotes a, a statement of the Talmud, which is that if a person, just like if a person does a mitzvah, he gets a reward, there's a schar. So you light Shabbos candles, there's a reward. Go to mikvah, there's a reward. Uh, make blessings, there's a reward. Um, you recite or hear Kiddush, there's a reward for that. We're not going to get into what the issue of reward, why we need a reward. Let's just, there's a reward for it. You did a good thing, you get rewarded. So the Gemara says that if a person sits, shove, and he, he, he sits, and he doesn't do a negative prohibition, so he doesn't eat non-kosher food, he doesn't speak Russian or um, negative things about other people, then he also is entitled to reward, just like he fulfilled the mitzvah. Now, if you take that Gemara very superficially, you come to the conclusion, well, that means that I am right now, just by default, getting reward for tons of mitzvahs. I'm not murdering anybody and I'm not committing, I'm not worshiping idols. And I'm, you know, I'm not even coveting my neighbor's donkey. I know that's strange to hear, but that is in fact true. So I get all the reward for all of these things because I'm not doing any of them. And I, upon a very simple reflection, it's very clear that's not the meaning of what the Talmud is saying. What the Talmud is saying is that when a person actively abstains from doing these things or saying these words or thinking these thoughts that they are inclined to do, that they desire to do, um, then that act of abstaining is, a, is the performance of a mitzvah and they're entitled to reward just like if they had done a positive mitzvah. So we have to therefore say that that it's not it's that that if I'm not putting pork into my mouth, that can be understood in two different ways. I could, I could just there's no pork going into my mouth. It's just a statement of fact. Or I am not letting the pork go into my mouth, despite the fact that there is 
some internal desire that I want to eat pork. And that's not actually the case, but let's just say that it is. One moment. So, given that, there is a behavioral element of actively not sinning because you have to take measures. Now, if we go one step further, okay, it's not simply that when a person desires to sin, when a person desires to sin, they have to actively stop themselves from doing it. Um, but there is a concept what's known in, in, in English as being careful. Okay? Um, a person who, who's normal does not walk on the edge of a cliff okay? and then says, well, if I start to fall, then I'll try and catch something. Right? A, a normal person doesn't walk at the edge of the cliff. They walk far away from the edge of the cliff or they make sure that there's a sturdy guardrail at the edge of the cliff and then they'll walk right up to the guardrail. Right. A person, uh, a person doesn't just um, abstain from behaviors in the moment when they desire to do so. They also actively take precautions um, to make sure that they don't get into dangerous situations. Okay, and included in that is being informed. Right. So, for instance, um, one of the one of the uh, joys of being in Israel is that um, there are a lot of little Arab villages and I don't know if it's the safest thing to go driving through an Arab village. So if you are planning a road trip, it's important to look at the map and see does, and, and, you know, to see does it actually go through an Arab village or does it not go through an Arab village because it can be quite disconcerting when all of a sudden you're going through an Arab village unexpectedly and you get all these angry stares at you, right? So a person who cares about that they want to be informed, what is down this road? Is this a road I want to take, okay? So there are a lot of ways that there are active things, both in terms of exercise of willpower and actual behaviors that a person takes, the more they care to avoid a particular outcome, the more they wanna make sure it doesn't happen. So while it's true that the negative commandments are abstaining or not doing things, right? But the way a person lives their life and the actions they take um, to ensure that they don't end up sinning, those are in fact active behavioral things. So take a very simple example, a person who knows that uh, they have a soft spot for fast food and they make sure not to walk past the McDonald's on their way home from work on a regular basis. Okay? So that they are walking in a different way in order not to sin. So there is something active happening. So the, 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 that, and that's, so what that means is now that a person can actually perform the negative commandments on various levels. So let's just take a simple example. We all know that there's food that are forbidden to eat, food that is not kosher. Now, one can simply say, well, any food, that, any food that's not kosher, I'm not going to eat. And they're very passive about it, which means that, um, you know, this happens very often in Israel. People are in Israel, they just assume that everything is kosher, and then they just walk anywhere and eat anywhere. A person say a little more carefully, no, I want to make sure the food is kosher, and check, for, check to make sure that it has a standard, a good standard of, of kosher certification. But then there's even beyond that, there's a person saying, look, 
there's actually disputes in halacha as to with as to regard as to what is kosher and what isn't kosher. And I want to be extra cautious. I want I want I don't want to rely on a lenient view because perhaps that is not in fact what God wants. And I want to be a little more stringent. Right. So there's an idea here that a person genuinely does not want to violate these commandments, and so they exercise willpower, they be, have to become informed, they make very serious life choices, which I'll tell you in a moment about a, a, an interesting story about that. Um, and, um, and, and they may even hold themselves to higher standards, all as a result of this desire not to sin, not to do um, what the Altarbis says is evil in the God's eyes. So there's actual active behavior, not just the absence of behavior in a negative mitzvah. Now, the, uh, to, illustrate, to illustrate this idea, um, there was a very famous chazan named um, Moshe Talashevsky, if I remember correctly, his first name is Moshe. If you ever see videos of the Rebbe's Febrengans, and there is a chazan singing the introduction to the song Sheibanabes Migdash, with his all, I'm not going to do an independent impression, but with all of the chazan uh, flair, um, that's Moshe Telshevsky. You know, he was a chazan in a shul um, that Nechitza was not up to halachic standards. This was actually quite common in the 50s and 60s, is that you would have a shul which was in the gray zone between orthodox and conservative. So you could have a congregation which was quite um, more leaning conservative and the rabbi and the chazan were orthodox or conversely, you could have where the, converse, uh, the community was much more orthodox and the rabbi was leaning more conservative. There was an interesting thing going on at that point. Anyway, so there, he gets a letter. I don't remember where he lived, but he was a chazan at the shul and that was his pardas, that's how he made a living. Um, and he gets a letter from the rabbi that the mechitza, the rabbi has heard that the mechitza the separation, the partition between the men and the women is not halachic standards. And, and it seems to be pretty clear that this was, was a matter of principles. It was not like they weren't informed. They didn't know, like, this was the standard that the shul decided to have. And, and the Rebbe told him that he should therefore not be chazan in that shul. He received that letter. That day, he moved out of town. Okay. In other words, he did not want for there to be any question, any issue. If this is not where I'm supposed to be, then this is where I'm supposed to be. He picked himself up and he moved, right? So there's a lot of active things, willpower, behaviors um, that, that, that went into it. It wasn't just that he didn't show up. He actually moved and he had to, then he then had to go find a new job. And there's all these things that he engaged in actively in order not to be um, doing something which he had received instructions was not what God wanted of him. Okay. So that's that idea. Now, another thing that needs to be explained in this section, um, and I'm going slightly out of order, but uh, I, I think that this is conceptually going from the, e the, the easier and more basic ideas to the more advanced ideas. Is that says that, that, that the sins are things that are wrong because God hates them. Okay. Um, that these are things that God hates. Now, one of the 
issues that people often have is that the idea of God loving people tend to be comfortable with. The idea of God hating send, tends to make people uncomfortable. Um, does anyone like to venture as to reason why they think that people are comfortable with the idea of God loving, but are uncomfortable with the idea of God hating? I'm very conscious, Rabbi, of even trying, because I know I'll get it wrong. <laughs> well, let me ask you, are you comfortable with the idea that God hates? Uh, I feel like the right answer would be like, no, not at all. I mean, you know, I'm cool with that. Okay. But no, there's something that's negative. Okay, so then why don't you just say why you're uncomfortable instead of speaking on behalf of all of humanity? Um. Well, let's go with the other one instead. I think there's a comfort found in the idea that God loves because you kind of look up in terms of, it's quite egocentric in a way of like, I want you to look after me. I want you, you know, what can I get from it? And all that kind of stuff. Whereas the idea of hating just suddenly flips into something. Hold on a second. Um, again, quite egocentric of, oh, why that means he's not satisfied. And now that relationship has flipped and it's no longer about me. It's about what's making him unhappy. Um, that makes me feel quite uncomfortable. That's just me, not not on part of the rest of humanity, Rabbi. Ah, okay. <laughs> Anyone have a different explanation as to why it might make you or just the generic humanity uncomfortable? I, I think your explanation is very good. Okay. Um, I, I, I would, I would abstract it ever so slightly and say like this if god loves and doesn't hate then that makes god safe right that's pretty safe but if god loves and hates well now a, a relationship with god carries with it all the issues of you know vulnerability as all real relationships right uh, i was giving a class to to a another group of people um and the topic of movies came up and one of the things that i, I mentioned about a movie is that a movie um it allows a person to have an emotional experience that in the real life is an unsafe emotional experience but they can have it in a safe way. And what I meant by that was, so if you take a movie, right? And you know, if the, the amount of, let's say, I don't know, adventure or drama um, or, or, or absolute ridiculousness, whatever the case might be, that you are vicariously experiencing the movie, you were to actually experience in your own life, some very interesting things would be happening with some very serious consequences that you would then have to manage the next day and week and month and year after, right? So to have that kind of an, those kinds of experiences, they have consequences and you have to be able to deal with those consequences and that, 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 that there's, a, there's a vulnerability to that and it, it's and not bad, but it's a lack of safety. And, and in real life, the more powerful the emotions being elicited are by the events in our lives, the more those events carry with them great um, consequence. But in the movie, you get all of the emotional roller coaster with none of the, with none of the risk. Right, because you're vicariously experiencing it through someone else. 
and that's and very appealing to people. Very edited as well, isn't what? it? So it's very edited as well. So it only shows you that bit of, you know, let's say a scene of someone crying. It doesn't show you the mental, let's say, effect that it might have or a psychological one of them re-experiencing whatever they might have gone through, let's say, over and over again, I guess. So. Right. Right. I mean, it also depends on the kind of movie and what the, what the, what the movie is trying to get a person yeah. to experience. Right. right. But at the end of the day, as a general rule, a person, when they're done with the movie, they can, you know, go back to their regular life. Right. Whereas if you would actually experience what you're vicariously experiencing movie in your real life, that's, that, it doesn't work like that. Okay. That being said, um, I, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean, I, 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 I don't mean to equate everything to, to that level, but there is an idea that people like safety. And the way I think of safety very much is, is that, is that there is a cushion for me, like, that I can experience something and there's not any, 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 you know, if I, if I fall, I'm not going to get hurt. Right? So someone who loves and doesn't hate, um, they care for me, right? But there's never any, there's never any so-called negative emotions back. That's very safe. Okay. Now, we could just say, okay, well, you know, tough luck. God isn't safe and, you know, God hates and deal with that, right? And don't stop being so egocentric. We could. However, if we think about it a little bit more deeply, let's imagine somebody in real life, let's imagine an actual person who loves and doesn't hate, okay? So you don't have to ever worry about doing something that displeases them, okay? How long could you maintain a close relationship with that person before that would drive you insane? Like, think about it. Like, you can do no wrong. Yeah. I don't know if they'll drive me insane. It might just get a bit boring if you just feel like you can't have a conversation and you can't, you know, because everything comes from. Okay. Like well, well, so, 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 uh, 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 so I, I think it depends on how invested you are. If you're really invested in making the relationship work, it'll drive you insane. If you're not that invested, you just get bored and kind of disassociate. Yeah. But if you're really, really trying to make this work and you can't, like, because what that means is fundamentally, they're not really seeing you at all if you love and don't hate you actually don't love either and that's actually something i was going to say later on in the context of of a jew that when a jew loves god he also hates and you can measure your degree of love by your degree of hate love and hate are actually um the the exact same thing and so if there is no hate, then what Chassidus would say is that there's no love either. There's something else that might superficially share characteristics with love, but it isn't love, right? Love is, a, as we spoke about many times before, love is a connection. It's a bonding. It's a closeness that brings to closeness. That means, by definition, love has to be personal, not universal, okay? Um, we've heard the idea that you're supposed to love every Jew. Okay. So um, there's a well-known phenomenon that many, many non-Jews who are anti-Semites 
right? So an anti-Semite, they hate the Jewish people. But just because you hate the Jewish people doesn't mean you hate, you know, your Jewish lawyer. He is actually you, him you like, right? Jews, the Jewish people, right? You don't like, but the individual Jew that you're friends with, right? That one you might actually like, right? This is the actual well-known phenomena. Um, the, the king and queen of Spain, when they, um, ex when, they, when they banished all the Jews, they wanted to keep their Jewish accountant. <laughs> like, you can stay. The Abarvanel, they told him, you can stay. Yeah. Um, so in, 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 in there's a, there's a, the joke go, goes is that, is that the anti-Semite, he hates Klal Yisrael, he hates the Jewish community of, of Israel, but, but he's fine with Reb Yisrael. He's fine with the, the guy named Yisrael next door that he's neighbors with that, you know, you know they, 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 they schmooze. But then you find the inverse is true with Jewish people. Like, I have yet to find a Jew who doesn't think, doesn't think that Ab Yisrael is an amazing thing and think we should love all Jews. Everybody, of course we should love all Jews. Big Ab Yisrael, we love the Jewish people, right? That's very easy. It's also worthless. Loving the Jewish people doesn't count for anything. The mitzvah of Ab Yisrael is to love individual Jews. Yeah? So it's like, I love all the Jewish people except for him and him and her and that guy, and that other one, and those people over there. But other than that, all the Jewish people, right? You, you see that beautiful picture, right? You're like all the Eden at the Kaiso, or like, I don't know, some sort of Zoom for bringing with like 30,000 Jews. Like, isn't that wonderful, right? But then the Jew who like, you know, you've been having a feud over, I don't know, whatever it is, that one you can't stand, right? So the mitzvah, and they say, and it's because the mitzvah of love, it has to be personal. It's individual. You love someone. You don't love an abstract collective. That's not really loving. That's not in the mitzvah of Avi Yisrael, right? People often say, like the Baal Shem Tov says, there's a, there's a camp song, like this. You love your fellow, the son camp song goes, I love your fellow Jew just the same as you. Um, and then there's a there's a there's a line in that song that goes even as across the even as across the sea, I still love him just the same. The idea is that you're supposed to love a Jew that's far the same way you love a Jew that's close. And many people say, well, wait a minute, much easier to love Jews that are far away. <laughs> like I love the Jewish community in Hong Kong. Do you know why? I don't know anyone in the Jewish community in Hong Kong. It's so easy to love them, right? <laughs> But the guy who sits next to me in shul who irritates me, that one's harder to love. But, but the real answer to that is that it's actually not true. You don't love the people you don't know. You don't, you don't love them at all. You have some sort of like, I don't know, universal feeling of goodwill towards them or whatever, some ethical whatever. But that's not love. Love is to someone. So the Baal Shem Tov's Chiddush, the novel the Baal Shem Tov says that you're supposed to cultivate that feeling of personal attachment to a Jew you've never met. That's that, that that's a that's a mind blowing thing. How that would make any sense? Well, we can talk about it and get to chapter thirty two. But so love is directed towards someone. So going back to God, if God loves everyone, regardless of what's going on and everything, and he's just you know one big hippie, then what it really means is that he doesn't love anybody. What it really means is that God is. Is, is, is very um, open, is very tolerant, is very accepting. Um, he, he's very positive, but he doesn't actually have any connection with any one person. Okay. If you love someone, that means you feel close to something. 
if you feel close to something, then there are also things that you dislike, things that go against that. Okay? In fact, uh, one, of the, one of the ways that a, a, a child knows that their parents actually love them is how um, upset their parents get at people that hurt their children. If, 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 if you've got a parent, and I'm not talking about behavior, because obviously you have, to, you, know, you have to behave in a reasonable way. But if a parent, if a parent, you know, if, there's a, there's a, if, if a child gets the sense that the parent equally feels good and positive about their child and the child who's picking on their child in the playground, then the, chi then, then the child gets the sense, yeah, that, that, that really, <laughs> that's really bad. The child gets a sense that there's, there's, there's nothing special to me. And then that, that grows even more. If, if the child can do no wrong, at a certain point, the child feels invisible. Okay? So the idea is that love and hate go together. If God loves good, then he hates evil. Okay? In fact, this is a verse that it says, Hashem, Those who love God hate evil. So if you want to test how much you love God, see how much you hate evil. Now that means is that if we look at, at behavior is a whole different thing because behavior, the question is the love and the question of behavior, behavior is very different because behavior depends on, on a few factors. First off, emotions are never, almost never so simplistic as just one emotion. And so mixed together before you get to behavior. Plus, there's rational thought most of the time as to how, what emotions I should translate into behavior and what behaviors are the best way to express the emotions I want to express. Um, so it, it, it's, a very, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very messy thing. It is definitely the case that the same behavior can be motivated by two very different emotions. Um, for instance, I might love my child and so I'm going to let them do something um, risky. Um, and the reason why I'm doing something risky is I love them and I care for them and I realize that they need this, this opportunity to grow and it's risky and yeah, they might get hurt, but, but I love them and I wanna see them grow and I don't wanna stifle them. So I, I let them do something risky because I love them, right? That's possible. I also let them do something risky because I just don't care what happens to them, right? <laughs> That's also possible. Right. So the same, the same, yeah. yes, you can go, I don't know, you know, I don't know, I don't know, you know, go mountain climbing. Could be because I don't care or be because I do care, right? It's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not so easy to work backwards without having a full context of what the person who's engaged in behavior is experiencing. Okay, so when God hates and God loves, those are seen in Chassidus as two sides of the underlying idea that God actually cares about things. God actually has values. God actually is not just fundamentally aloof and indifferent. And somebody who only loves and doesn't hate doesn't really love either. And so yes, there is safety in that, but there is also depersonalization, there's also isolation. Um, you know, you're, you're, the nurse who's treating you, right? Um, you hope that she's not treating you with love. You know why? Because if she's treating you with love, if she lets that 
influence how she treats her patients. So what happens when there's a patient that really irks her? Right? We want the nurse to be treating out of some sense of uh, some sense of ethical duty, right? That's what we call professionalism, right? But professionalism, it's good for, for the reasons why it's good, but it's also it also prevents relationships from developing, right? And if everybody was professional about everything, right? Imagine you had professional parents and professional children, professional siblings, professional spouses, everything was a professional, like then 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 you know, the relationship is is boring if you're not that interested in it succeeding and if you're really invested it's it's, it's infuriating okay so the idea of god's love and hate are what are called the two sides or the two angles that come from one essential point that god is not indifferent god genuinely cares god is genuinely engaged he he he, he has real He's a real being with real agency. And yes, that means a relationship with him, like all relationships, carries an element of risk, an element of, of, of danger, a possibility of, of, of disappointment and hurt. But it also carries with it the possibility of connection and growth and intimacy. And those two things, by definition, go together. You cannot have one without the other. So that's the idea of God's hate. Now, what does God hate? Yes, Sorry, someone had a question. Sorry, I just ask a question. Sorry. I'm just thinking in terms of the, um, as you, I'm so sorry, by the way, I have the train runs literally at the bottom of my garden. So that's kind of the sounds behind. Um, but as, as human beings, I, I don't know, probably know more than I do but I think we kind of seek a lot of validation and we seek acknowledgement and and a lot of the time that happens is either via action or via communication um like for example the the mountain climbing thing of you know you care about them therefore you're going to allow them or you don't care about them therefore you're going to allow them to go mountain biking um, mountain climbing or whatever how how can we get that level of validation in a in a human way in terms of kind of knowing if we're doing the right thing you know because i'm like i can't i don't even know if i know how to explain it properly but like in terms of being able to do mitzvot different people different levels trying to do what they can at their level how do you know you are hitting those marks in terms of then having that relationship of diminishing the hatred <laughs> and hopefully increasing the love um from hashem i guess so so th th there's a lot in that question there's one thing there's a premise in that question I think is not stated that I want to I want to draw out. There is there are there are different ways that love and hate work. One way that love and hate work is where a person keeps a tally. Okay? So I'm in a relationship with someone, okay? Whether it's my my spouse or my child or my parent or my friend and I'm keeping a tally of that person and how many good things they're doing for me and how many bad things they're doing for me right and and whether I you know what they're doing that makes me like them what they're doing that makes me hate them right and I am and I am going to react in kind I will treat them as they deserve based on you know scorecard mm. now that is a kind of relationship well if you had to use a, a, a adjective to describe that kind of relationship what adjective would you pick to describe that kind of relationship? 
A business transaction. A business or petty. transaction, right? Petty. Just calculate. Right? Well, I would say it's like this. I would say it's like this. If the purpose of the relationship is what you can get from the person and it's not really about the relationship, then I would say business, which is fine, right? Because, um, you know, the, the, but if the purpose of the relationship is the actual connection, then yeah, I would say petty is a great, it's very petty. Now, God is not petty. Just because he loves and hates doesn't make him petty. Which means the idea that you like need to know like where you're holding, does God think you're like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, does God think you're a six or a seven or a five? Like that, that, that means you're treating the relationship with a pettiness. And the general rule is that when a person thinks that God is petty, it's because they're petty. I just feel like issue. you can find yourself in some psychological turmoil if you're constantly trying to seek and to reach and to be better and you know more refined and that kind of thing you surely will get to a point if you can't get any level of measurement that satisfies yes it's a personal thing but satisfies your own kind of checklist say or whatever it is you you surely are going to find yourself in some mental issue because right, you can't right, you can't right. get that like satisfaction of saying you know what actually i was there i'm here now i am getting do you know what i mean like something that shows progress right, right. right. so but that's what i want to say is that, that 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 levels and things like that is is a little bit misleading because it creates this this pettiness the proper way to think about it is that in a relationship the question is what is the direction in which things are moving Okay, and the way the direction of things are moving is that it's not enough to just do the right things and not do the wrong things. The question is, how is that moving the overall way that the parties feel towards each other? And for that, a person needs a kind of guidance, they need structure, they need to have a kind of a sense of things. But the idea of like actually like evaluating it in terms of like some sort of measurement and point system, that, that, that's very, very petty. So for this, we have a few basic things, okay? Number one, number one, um, and this cannot be underestimated enough, is the importance of being honest with yourself. We all know that for the vast majority of the time, we can know when we're fooling ourselves and if a person is willing to lie to themselves, they're willing to fool themselves, no amount of any other things are going to help. And that actually solves over 90% of the ambiguity. Then you have a few other things, okay? Um, there's a, we have something called the Code of Jewish Law. And for those of us who are not experts in wielding it, we have um, halakhic authorities that we should be consulting, right? Um, in addition, the mission tells us that someone should have for themselves a master, some mentorship. A person should, should always have someone who they trust, actually cares about their relationship with God and has some more wisdom and experience that they will genuinely defer to, which is different than a friend. Because right? a friend you don't have to defer to, but someone you generally are, are going to defer to, even though they, this other person is also flawed. Okay? But to find a person who, who, who you... you, you, you you can benefit from their wisdom, okay? And um, 
there has to also be a willingness to accept the fact you're going to do things wrong along the way. Not that that's a, not that that's a justification to, to make mistakes, but that the, you're not setting yourself up for this idea that, that you're going to do everything right and not take any wrong turns along the way. Right. Um, and when a person, you know, and, and, and then the question is, and then the question is to then ask the hardest question of all, which is how much of this is God playing the, a, a role in fulfilling my desires and how much is this actually trying to connect to God as someone else? What do I mean? Let's say I'm, I, 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 I really want to live a meaningful moral life. And so I need some kind of anchor and justification for that moral system. So God is playing that role, right? So God is, it's not really about God. It's really about my need to live a certain lifestyle and have a certain values. And so God is just kind of the justification of that. Or is it, no, 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 there's actually this being called God and he's not me. He's different than me. And he has his own agenda and I actually want to develop a close relationship with him. And yeah, that means encountering the places where we're different from each other and the places that there's going to be conflict and there's going to be tension and, and, and actually deferring to, to his desires. Right. Um, if you if you notice, this sounds a lot like a marriage, by the way. Right. You can get, you know, in other words, if you're not going to be honest with yourself, there's really no way to make a marriage work. Yeah. Um, there are some basic structures to how, you know, marriage work. Everything from, um, you know, basic communication techniques um, to societal roles and blah, blah, blah. And if you if you try and buck the system and just make it work on your own. Um, you're setting yourself up for a lot of you know things, and, and everybody has, the, and your spouse is going to have a, you know things that work for them and don't work for them. You have to learn those things, and you know it's good to have mentorship and people to ask and people to defer to and you know, get wisdom from. And yeah, the question is ultimately is when you marry somebody, are you you know are you trying to have a relationship with someone else, which is hard, or are you trying to have someone meet your needs? And yeah. And then, and you realize that you're going to have bumps along the road, right? So it's basically like that. And, 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 and I think therefore what underlies all of that is the ability to have confidence in yourself. Because if you don't have confidence in yourself, then you need someone else to dictate every iota of what's going on. Because all of those things that I said rely on you having confidence to say, yeah, I'm doing it this way. And, you know, this is the best that I can do. And yeah. In fact, that's the difference between a small child and an adult. A small child needs constant feedback. Oh, you tied your shoes. Like, do you need someone to tell you that you tied your shoes correctly today and you put the right one on the right foot and left on the left foot? You need someone to... Okay, so now, if somebody really needs that... If somebody really needs that kind of... on, And, and again, it's not... I'm making this as black and white, right? There's yeah. gradations here. But if someone really needs ongoing validation of every step along the way you're doing what right, then you're a child. There's nothing wrong with being a child, but then you're a child, and, and children don't really develop into full, aren't really full participants in relationships. And Tanya's not really written for a child relationship with God. You know, the, 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 the ideas in Tanya become more and more relevant as a person moves out of childhood into, you know, more, you know, early adolescence. In fact, the, 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 when the Rebbe would speak to children, the Rebbe would never use the term animal soul. He used the term evil inclination. Very black and white. There's a, there's a, 
is a voice that says do the wrong things. It's not nothing sophisticated about them, nothing that needs to be worked with. Right? So I, I think if you if if you take whatever these things that I'm saying and you apply them to the religious context, on paper it's very self-explanatory. In real life, it's obviously hard, you know. Um, but but having but 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 wanting that constant affirmation that you're doing it right, um, it introduces a level of, of pettiness and it rides on the person's insecurity. Um, and, and it's not a healthy way to have a relationship with anybody. Um, that being said, everybody needs to know, you know what they need and, and how to move in the right direction. So more individually, you need to have mentor to help you with that. Okay, where are we holding time was? Okay, so... Things that God hates. Now, what does God hate? He says God. He says here that God hates the klipa and the sitra. So the klipa, as we said before, that klipa means a husk or a shell or a peel. And the idea is that those are things that cover over God. And sitra means it's other than God. And these these terms will be elaborated in more detail later on in time. And basically, what this means in a nutshell is God hates the things that obscure God. God hates the things that are antithetical to God. Now, what I would like to what I like to do is, is briefly talk about is that this can be understood in one of two ways. This can be understood like God is very, very selfish. God hates the things that obscure him. Or this can be understood in which is in the proper way, which is that there's nothing selfish about this at all. Okay. What do I mean? If you see somebody brutally attacking somebody and robbing them of their money, okay, and you feel indignant and outraged, and how could they? And that's so immoral and that's so wrong, and you you, you it, it makes your blood boil and you're just you're, you're, you really hate that what does that say about you as a person I, 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 let's absent behaviors because let's they're just talking about how it makes you feel not like, whether you do something about that depends on a variety of factors i want to talk about but the fact that it makes you feel so upset so indignant so outraged what does that say about you what that you're empathetic you're empathetic? Empathetic. Like you have empathy for empathetic. others. Yeah, you have empathy for others. Right. So what does that mean? That means that you hate things that obscure you. And you are a moral person. You are a person who senses the value in other person's life and well-being. You're a person who experiences and cares about other people's experiences, right? And somebody else is attacking somebody else and depriving them of their property, that goes against you. Not you in a selfish way, but you in the sense of the kind of being you are. In other words, hating things that obscure yourself, it, it doesn't mean hating things that are that that like cause you to have like personal issues. It means it means that there's 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 something that 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 in, um, speaks to your soul, and when things go against what speaks to your soul, you despise it. 
So if what speaks to your soul is goodness, then what you despise is evil. If what speaks to your soul is being at the top of all social hierarchies and never having to suffer inconvenience, well, then what, what you despise is having to, you know, be subordinate to anybody else or having to, you know, placate other people's, what you would see as petty desires. Okay, but so if, if God is good and God is true and God is, you know, all, for lack of words, just say all positive things, then God hates all the stuff that, that is against that. God is good. He hates evil. If God is noble. He hates indignity. If God, if God is true, he hates false. Right? Um, so we have to understand this idea that the Klippa and Sidracha, they obscure God by understanding that obscuring someone doesn't mean going against like their, their selfish repentance. It goes going against where do we see that God practiced hatred? Well, if he says that he practices hatred, would you believe him? I would believe him, but I want to know specifically where we see it. Do we see it? Do we see it? Well, I'm going to tell you a story, and you tell me if there's any hatred involved. Okay. One day there was a man. He was coming home, and he noticed that there was some kids in the park kicking on his, uh, on his son taunting him, roughing him up, you know. And as he walked by every day, you know, kids will be kids. But as he walks by, he knows that the, the, the bullying gets more and more aggressive. The bullying gets more and more aggressive. And at one point, he, 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 can't, he walks in the park, and he goes over to the, the, the bullies that are messing with his kid, and he says, look, don't mess with my son. Just don't. Trust me, you're going to regret it. Don't do it. And he storms off. And they continue bullying their son, bullying his son, and bullying his son. And one day, the guy walks in the park. He sees him bullying his son, and that's it. And um, as they say, he cracks some skulls. Would you say that there was any hatred involved in that story? Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah. would you or not? Yeah. Okay. So read, read, so so read the parshas of Shemos, Ve'era, Boy, and Bashalach, the story of the Exodus, because that's exactly how the story plays out. In fact, the the right even before the ten, right away when Hashem tells Moshe, he says, "Go tell Paro that he's messing with the Jewish people who are my firstborn son. So I'm going to kill his firstborn son. Like like you touch my kid, you're going to pay for it." That's, that's what he says. It's right there, very black and white, in the Chumash. Right? The, the, the tenth and final plague was promised from the beginning, and it's, you know, you, you mess with me, you're going you're gonna to suffer. Okay? Um, you can just read, you know, the entire, and then, I mean, that, that, I, I choose that example because, it, you know, Jews don't suffer in that one. By God's hand, um, but if you read the if you if you if you read the um, if you read the prophets, right? The, the basic story of, of of a lot of the prophets is the Jews do evil in God's eyes. God gets upset, and the Jews suffer. Then they repent. Then God saves them. Then repeat the process. Yeah. 
And there's verses all over. These are the things that God hates. And these are the things that God finds abominable. These are the things that God despises. Yeah, there's verses like this. Yeah, he despises shrimp. Don't eat it. it really ticks them off. So, I, I mean, there is some interesting question as to like, what, in what way does shrimp obscure God and, 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 and you know, eating hamburgers with a hechsher do not, but that we'll have to discuss later on in Tanya when these terms are more elaborated. But the idea for right now is that, is that sins actually are, are things that God hates. They're not merely, um, you know, things that are bad for you and God in his great kindness has told you not to do them. Um, but how do you exercise that? One second, the chat went away, one second. Oh, there it is. Okay. Um, Hello. Yes, I'm trying to find. Someone asked a question and it disappeared. Okay. You, that was you God having loving, hating individually to say. Um, I don't know if I said that. I think you said that he. We don't have these individual relationships of love anymore. And then I was like, but what about Moshe? I think I think you're probably remembering something. Either I misunderstood what you asked, or you misunderstood what I answered, or both. It sounds like there's a kernel of something that I said, but I don't. I don't. I, I, if I said that God does not have individual loving, hating relationships today, then uh, as a blanket statement, then I retract it. Um, I, I don't think that's true. I probably said maybe that that's not apparent. It's not overtly revealed. That I probably would have said. Um, it is definitely not the case that you can walk through life nowadays and say, oh, this person is suffering because God is upset with him. This person is doing well because God you know, really likes what, what they're doing. That is not true anymore. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't individual degrees of love and hate and a dynamic relationship. It just means that it is not reflected in necessarily what happens in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, the relationship, you know, because you know, again, as I spoke before, there's a difference between how you feel and how you behave. There's a difference between how God feels about us and what we actually be doing. Whereas, say, in the biblical era, it was much more linked. God was much more direct about showing us how he felt at every given moment. Which is, like I said, that's the main lesson of the, uh, of the prophets. So maybe that's what I meant. But I think also I you, you, maybe, I don't know if this is what Jenna is referring to, but you were saying that when we say like we love all Jews, you were saying, I think for our, for our part, that for us to say we love all Jews doesn't mean that we have an individual connection with any, any one Jew. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hashem doesn't love all Jews. He, lo he loves each and every individual Jew. He does not love the totality of the Jews. Did he leave? Is that guys, we've broken the rabbi. He lost connection. <laughs> oh, that's no. it. It's that. Rabbi's back. Sorry. Okay. Just to finish that thought. So he loves he loves each individual Jew. Um, 
Obviously, when the Jews are together, there's an added thing. The analogy is given is that a parent loves each of their children individually, but when the children are together, there's an added type of love from the family um, harmony and unity. Um, but no, the God does not love the Jewish people in some sort of abstraction. So maybe that's what I meant. All right, we'll have to continue this um, next week, and we'll talk about these different... Do we speak more about the specific fears themselves that the Gal Rebbe spoke about, which we didn't really address? And then we'll move on from there. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good shot. Good job, Is. Can't hear you, darling. You're on mute. Hey. <laughs> Yay. Because it's really fun to see you. Huh? It's really fun to see you. And you, your hair is so long. It is. <laughs> what have you done? How come you By the way, we didn't hear the train. I, like, there was no noise, just so you know. Can you not hear it? Oh, it's literally like about 15, 20 meters away. And during work, I've been doing a lot of work from home. And everyone's like... Mm -hmm. Like yes, I'm so sorry. Next to the train, but yeah, how are you feeling? Good. <laughs> ah, it's so fun. I don't know if everyone else is here. Hi, feel free to get involved. <laughs> um, <laughs> otherwise, we can move to a WhatsApp call if that's if that's easier. It's still know. part of the recording. I think if someone's gonna listen to this, class, oh, it is. Should we stop recording it? <laughs> oh no, we can't. <laughs> This is quite funny. <laughs> okay, I'll meet you on WhatsApp. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know how to leave it. How do I leave? <laughs> I'm across this. <laughs> oh yes, leave me.